welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Today, I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Laura. And we're here today with Tyler Dexler, Dexter. So, Tyler, welcome. Yes, hello. Thanks for having me. So, what, what is it that you do? What's your, what's your research about? Yeah, so just broadly, I guess the overarching goal of my research, my research project, is to uh, look at mechanisms within the prefrontal cortex of mice and how they're involved in uh, cognitive processes related with uh, neurological diseases. And I think there's, there's two primary components uh, of my project, first being the mechanisms we're interested in, and the second being the uh, cognitive testing system we're using for the mice. So firstly, and just briefly, we're inter interested in a specific subpopulation of inhibitory neurons, those releasing GABA in the medial prefrontal cortex of mice, um, characterized by the expression of carbalbumin, which is a calcium binding protein um, that is kind of the primary designation for these neurons, as well as their fast spiking potential. So their ability to fire very quickly um, and how they're related in elements of executive function. So attention, working memory, and to assess those while the mice are performing the tasks, we use a technique called optogenetics. And, um, and in terms of the cognitive tasks we're using, we use the, uh, the touchscreen testing system, which are automated tasks uh, that are performed in a chamber where the mice are placed in the chamber and left alone for the entire testing session. And essentially they're trained to interact with a, a touchscreen. So think of like an iPad for mice essentially. And uh, we have a variety of tasks programmed into the systems that we can run. And specifically what I'm doing, as I mentioned, is looking at a uh, task of attention and working memory in the mice. Hmm. I mean, that is, a, uh, that is as thorough a first answer I've ever heard on GradCast. <laughs> Your entire work as succinctly as I've heard anyone ever say it. That was uh, really well done. Um, I think that there is a lot that we need to tease apart there maybe for some of the listeners. Um, let's first off and say, so cognition, this is like kind of how smart or how the animal is thinking and you're def you said you're working with mice. So, and in their brain, you look, you said there was different types of neurons, specific neurons that you're looking at. So um, why don't we first talk about how, um, how do you, how exactly do you know you're testing cognition what is what exactly is cognition and how do you know you're testing that in the mice yeah so i think obviously cognition is a broad term it's akin to saying behavior right it accompanies um all the processes of the brain that i think a lot of people would agree are being performed consciously so for the sake of what i'll be talking about we'll talk about kind of goal-directed cognition um and what we use uh, to assess the mice are then specific tasks aimed at probing specific elements of cognition. And as I mentioned, we're looking at cognition or cognitive processes that are primarily associated with the prefrontal cortex. And so one way of making this distinction between a brain region and a specific form of cognition uh, are through uh, the assessment of maybe like human patients that have damage to localized brain regions, then you can observe the, uh, the certain cognitive deficits they may have, or in animal models, targeted lesions or pharmacological manipulations. Um, 
so how do we know the mice are performing uh, cognition? Um, that's an interesting question. And I think it's as much of a philosophical one as a, a neuroscientific one. Um, and as I mentioned, one method of doing that is probing different brain regions and essentially seeing uh, seeing what the mice are able to do. So for, for instance, I'll start with uh, a task that I've been working on, um, which is a touchscreen task of attention. So essentially the ability of the animals to direct focus towards the stimuli that are presented on the screen. So we use different pictures or images um, and whether they can maintain that focus toward the screen uh, throughout a testing session. And that's characterized by uh, responding to the correct images, not responding to incorrect ones. So I think as, as I'm talking about this too, it, it's easy to see that there's multiple aspects of cognition even in one type of task. So you have, say our attention task, are the mice paying attention to the screen? Are they motivated to perform the task? It comes down to even how are, are they even able to visually discriminate easily on the touchscreen as well. So, so those, are the, those are the type of things that, uh, that we're interested in, in looking at. So what happens if they're not interested on the screen? Like if they want to do something different? I don't know. Um, yeah, no, that's, it, it's a fair question. And I think it's a, kind of an overarching issue that when developing cognitive tasks for rodents uh, specifically, or well, not specifically, but specifically to what I'm doing, um, is something that makes it challenging, right? Like how do we get animals to engage in what we want them to do? So. Traditionally, uh, obviously, if you think of testing in rodents, the first thing that probably comes to mind is using specific mazes. So mazes that the animals have to navigate through. Um, and then the second component is motivating them. So are they motivated to explore new things? Or in our case, can we motivate them with uh, a food or liquid reward? And so that's what we do. So as I mentioned, the animals are in a chamber and they're essentially trained that specific responses on the screen are associated with receiving a reward and that's how we train them and the reward we use is a strawberry milkshake so uh, will we find that they're pretty eager for the strawberry milkshake and uh, it definitely aids in, in the training process but in terms of if they're not interested in it you can you you can kind of see it so like there's video cameras uh, in all our touchscreen systems so we can observe the mice as they're performing the task and you'll observe behaviors like you'll put reward for them and they have no interest in going to get it. Uh, they're not interacting with the screen at all. So there's kind of secondary measures that, that are vital to performing these kind of tasks to uh, ensure that the animals are interested, as you said, in, in, doing, in doing the task at all. So that's very interesting. And I wonder, because like I've seen these cats playing with iPads, like looking for a, <laughs> for a fish or something. And I was wondering if it's, it's something similar or what, what are they looking at in the screen? Yeah, so I think there, there's a couple of different things, right? So uh, for instance, rodents um, have a, an innate, uh, I guess an innate, uh, a kind of evolutionarily programmed response to move towards light. So we, we can present light stimuli on the screen and theoretically the animal should be interested in engaging with it based on just this, uh, this innate uh, response. In terms of something like a, uh, for instance, you, sh you mentioned a cat playing on a touch screen and they were showing videos of fish, I think you said? Yeah. 
Yeah, so that may be tapping into a more naturalistic thing in cats. They're maybe they're able to perceive this video of a fish as maybe thinking it's a, a live animal and wanting to interact with it. Um, you'll see similar things uh, in behavioral studies where people test uh, like zebrafish, for example, uh, and something that's used in, in those studies is an actual video uh, presented beside the tank of a predator, predatory fish. And then you can assess things like uh, escape and avoidance behaviors in that. So I think in terms of, uh, of what's kind of driving the mice uh, to perform the task is the learned association with the screen and interacting with the screen and uh, the food reward that's delivered throughout, that, uh, throughout the training sessions. Maybe, maybe just for fun, I'm going to pretend I'm the, I'm the mouse and I'm going through your training. What's the life of the mouse, at least from the perspective of doing your behavior? I, I, uh, step one, I, I, you, put, you put me in front of an iPad and what do I see? Yeah, so for sure, we'll go briefly through the training stages. So obviously the first thing um, is the reduction of novelty aversion, right? So we're putting the animals in this chamber that they're unfamiliar with. There's no aversive stimuli uh, uh, associated with the chamber, but it's new to them and they're not really sure what's going on. So it's through a bit of a shaping process and very brief amount of times over multiple days that we just put the mouse uh, in the touchscreen chamber, let them kind of hang out, uh, realize nothing bad's gonna happen in there. And that first reduces that aversion to this novel environment that they have no context for. After that, we start to introduce just uh, the milkshake reward. So at the back of the chamber, there's a little receptacle and milkshake is dispersed there. And it's just left in there for the time that the mice are in there. So eventually they'll be exploring more, they'll come across the food receptacle and throughout a little bit more of ensuring them that nothing bad is going to happen, they start to drink the milkshake there. So once we have them kind of comfortable in the in the touchscreen systems and probably finding it a, uh, a pleasant place to be, uh, a, a dispensary of delicious strawberry milkshake, uh, then we start to train them to interact with the screen. And this is simply done through, uh, as I mentioned, the uh, the concept of them kind of exploring in the chamber and that eventually they may interact with the screen. So we just present a light stimulus on the touch screen and they start to interact with that, all the while milkshake is still being provided. And then we start to build on the association between milkshake is only provided when you touch the screen. And then we build that relationship. So they start to learn that, okay, screen, light on the screen, good, touch it, I get the milkshake. And then that's really the foundation of all our behavioral tests. Then we can start to get into more specific types of, of learning and different uh, domains of cognition after we've essentially taught them to touch the screen and learn the reward association with it. So for the attention task that I mentioned, the one I work with specifically, we then start to present different images on the screen. And these are visually uh, discriminable by the animals. And we teach them that uh, one type of image is rewarded and others aren't. So it's through that uh, a further shaping process that now we're getting more specific in, in, uh, in what the mice are supposedly in there to do, right? Trying to train them that this is kind of goal-oriented uh, behavior in this touchscreen chamber. And then once we've established that association, then we can start uh, doing our manipulations, as I mentioned, optogenetics, start uh, probing uh, the task, making the stim stimuli appear quicker, uh, adding in distracting information, and that's where you get into the, the fun of looking at different aspects of cognition. 
So now that you mentioned optogenetics, I wonder because when I saw that word, I was like, okay, something with light, but also something with genetics. And I was wondering if what you do to the mice will be something that they will pass to further generations or why do they have the word genetics there? Or like, does it affect the mice DNA or? Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's adaptively named. It uses both genetic manipulations as well as light. So uh, the premise of optogenetics is that you would, you would take a, a mouse and um, introduce a, uh, a, um, a genetic construct that holds uh, the DNA for a specific opsin protein. So these are proteins that have been isolated um, that are light sensitive, essentially. So uh, through genetic manipulation, uh, we then get mice that express a specific opsin protein under specific uh, neuron types, if that makes sense at all. So you can, con you can construct these uh, essentially viral, uh, viral carriers of both the opsin gene and make them dependent on a specific uh, gene that's already present in the mouse genome. So I mentioned that I'm interested in parvalvin neurons. So we can construct, well, I don't construct it. People that uh, <laughs> make it available for us to use are doing the construction, but uh, essentially program um, uh, this, the gene for this opsin that's light sensitive uh, to make it dependent on a specific neuron promoter. So then you can breed animals through uh, generations and you get mice that are uh, that express these options that can either activate or inhibit neurons uh, in the presence of light. And so to deliver the light, uh, there is a, an implant, a fiber optic implant into the brain. And essentially you just attach that implant to a cord and a cord goes up to a light source and you drive in light of specific wavelengths, so specific light colors that then, uh, that then control the neurons essentially. Cool. I mean, uh, this is an amazing technology <laughs> that uh, that uh, we're pretty lucky to have available uh, in this day and age because it's really a, a powerful, powerful tool uh, that you can manipulate certain neurons in the brain and not others. And then again, target them with light. So that's really uh, time sensitive. Um, like you can quickly turn it on and turn it off. So um I'd like to know, you know, what um, you know, what tasks you're 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 working on with this particular um, uh, type of neuron, and uh, you know why you're turning it on and off. But maybe first, can you tell me why um, these neurons that that um, that have parvalbulin, uh, par parvalbumin, why those neurons specifically? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'd say over the last couple of decades, uh, these parvalbulin neurons have been have been generating a lot of interest as potential modulators of cognition. And it really comes from uh, a couple observations, I guess. I'm trying to think of what would be uh, the best one to start with. So um, when looking at uh, primates, so whether you're looking at humans using uh, electrical recordings uh, from, the, from the brain or in, in non-human primates as well, more uh, implants related, uh, engaging in tasks that depend on the prefrontal cortex. So, for instance, working memory, uh, well-defined prefrontal cortex-dependent uh, cognitive domain. Um, recording the electrical activity from this region, we, they uh, observe uh, an increase in uh, osculatory activity, so synchronous firing of neurons at specific frequencies. Um, and for the purpose of my project, we're interested in the frequencies at the gamma oscillations. 
So around 30 to 40 hertz, there's higher gamma, but uh, especially in the, in the rodent literature, this is really the key, the key range that people are, are interested in. So this is kind of gonna come associated with the idea that uh, engaging in cognitive tasks that recruit the prefrontal cortex are associated with an increase in this gamma oscillatory activity. And since the idea has been uh, associated that this type of this type of neural activity is involved in the promotion of information relay, um, and just in in uh, in that kind of aspect, that this is kind of a pro-cognitive state of brain firing. So, um, in a couple studies, I think it was around 2005, 2006, um, when optogenetics was starting to become more popularized. Uh, targeted parvalvin neurons specifically in brain slices, and they observed that when they stimulated these neurons um, and recorded the electrical activity of local excitatory neurons, that they were able to entrain this gamma osculatory activity um, in this circuit. And so this has kind of become the concept that parvalvin neurons are critical in either generating or at least maintaining uh, gamma osculatory activity. And so moving on from there, uh, it becomes quite evident that there is some role of these neurons in regulating cognitive processes and specifically those that we're interested in in the prefrontal cortex through this association with being able to uh, generate gamma osculatory activity. And that's really the, the primary rationale for why myself and others are interested in looking at, at these neurons in, in the context of these tasks. So if I, if I understand correctly, um, there it's a, people knew that uh, this part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is involved in cognition. And then when they took it, they took it, they took a piece of the brain outside of the brain, and they they specifically found neurons that had this certain protein, parvalbulin. Par par. Why can't I say that? It's a tough par, one. Yeah, <laughs> parvalbulin. Um, so they uh, they found neurons like that, and they said they found that um, when they turn those on in the dish. Um, all the neurons fire at a at a certain rate, like warm, warm. I don't know if I could actually go warm, warm, warm at like a certain <laughs> forty. I don't know if you know if you would recognize it if you heard a forty hertz tone, um, but uh, like a certain rate that they're all firing like together, I guess synchronized, like you said, uh, and it was uh, dictated by 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 activating these particular type of neurons. So now. Um, now, anyone who wants to manipulate that type of frequency in that part of the brain, they go to those type of neurons. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right on. And that's, that's honestly maybe an easier way to think about it in terms of sound. Like I'm talking about light frequencies, but it's the same thing, a sound frequency at that, at that, at that specific hertz range. But that's exactly it as well. It kind of made the connection between uh, this observation in in vivo, so in live subjects that engaging in particular tasks is associated with this gamma osculatory activity. So this 30 to 40 Hertz range within this brain region. And then, as you said, uh, then kind of taking a step down to the, uh, the molecular cellular level, uh, finding a mechanism for inducing this. And now with the ability of optogenetics, while animals are performing a given task, it's now possible to kind of bridge these two observations together. You have the mechanism that can be manipulated uh, as well as the functional behavior. How are you, how is it beneficial to you 
to be using um, optogenetics versus uh, maybe a, a more blunt tool that just turns on parvalbumin neurons all the time or turns them off all the time? Why is it beneficial for you to be able to use the light? How are you using that in your studies? Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail right on the head uh, a few minutes ago when you kind of highlighted the, the temporal precision of optogenetics. And that's exactly what, what makes it so powerful, right? Like we've obviously in neuroscience has benefited an extraordinary amount from drug studies, whether they're being delivered directly to the brain or given systemically. So through the whole, the whole body system. But now, as you mentioned, that lasts a long period of time, right? So there, you lose the temporal aspect, even if you can get specific neuron types targeted. So we're interested with the optogenetics is exactly that temporal aspect. As I mentioned, uh, you have this attention task that we use and we say, obviously we can measure attention with it, but there's multiple components, right? So you have the period of the task where there's no stimulus displayed where theoretically out attention may be kind of the animal might be getting prepared for something to appear on the screen, um, anticipation of receiving an award, reward. Um, then you have the actual presentation of the image on the screen. So now you're getting into the animal has to first uh, detect it, it has to discriminate what it is, and then it has to make a response. And then after that, you have the period where the animal may collect the reward and therefore kind of uh, integrating that association again, the, the relationship between the stimulus and the reward. So with optogenetics, we can target those distinct those distinct aspects of the task and thereby most likely start looking at very distinct cognitive processes that while are related in performing a specific task are likely distinct as well. And that's exactly where the, the power of optogenetics comes in and is that temporal window. So uh, are you saying that, you know, we, we went through step by step how that what the mouse is doing when it's engaging in your task, you'd say like, uh, specifically turn on the, these particular neurons in the brain um, just when they're looking at, this, at, at the discrimination screen. That's it. When they look at the screen, you turn it on. Uh, there are any, any other time during the task, you don't turn it on, and then you see how, what effect that has. Is, is that kind of how your study goes? That, that's 100% what we did. So, um, for instance, uh, one of the experiments I ran was using optogenetics. Instead of turning them on at a specific frequency, we just turned them off altogether for that specific time that the light was turned on. And we did that at distinct parts of this attention task we have. So the period, uh, um, the period before the image is presented, the period while it's presented, and then compared with it just the light being on through that whole section. So just the whole kind of attentional component of the task. And what we found in the context of our study is that if we turn the parvalbumin neurons off previous to the stimulus being presented, there was no effect on behavior. So as soon as the stimulus appeared, the light was on, or the light was turned off, sorry, and theoretically the circuit should rebound to normal functioning. Um, but when we turned uh, the light on during periods of the task while the stimulus was present, we saw an impairment in behavior. So the impairment in the animals to optimally process that image. So that was a, a really a, um, a way to highlight the, the pairing of the optogenetics with, with our task, where there's very distinct temporal windows in engaging how these neurons are involved in this, pro, in this cognitive process. 
I mean, that, that's amazing. I mean, I mean, I almost wish I had some uh, optogenetics in my brain. So if I wanted to focus on a particular thing, I could just press a button and turn on a light. It would be <laughs> a lot easier than, uh, I don't know how I naturally just decide to focus on something, but it's, it's pretty taxing and pretty difficult. <laughs> um, uh, how, yeah. how did, uh, sorry. Go ahead, Laura. I was actually wondering how is that translatable to humans? Like, is this kind of experiment also occurring in humans, or are you studying something that also is part, like, also happens in the human brain, so we can like, like, make a correlation there? Yeah, a hundred percent. So I think the first part of your question are these kind of experiments being done in humans? Uh, I think we're a little bit ways off from seeing optogenetics in, in humans at this point, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, in terms of kind of what these types of experiments mean for the field of neuroscience, when you think of, uh, attention, for instance, attention is something that's disrupted in things like schizophrenia, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, you go down the list in terms of these prefrontal cortex dependent cognitive processes that are impaired in a number of neurodegenerative diseases, neuropsychiatric disorders, and are really a focus in preclinical in preclinical research. So, testing drugs to in specific animal models to see if we can improve attention and can we then translate that to, to clinical trials. But it's difficult to, in my mind, I think, to really optimally do that if we don't first understand what mechanisms in the brain of our preclinical animals, so in rodents, are regulating attention in the first place. So are we going to uh, kind of optimally study it in the context of some disease if we don't understand kind of completely uh, what's involved in it in, in, a normal, in a normal process? And I think in, in terms of relating this work to kind of uh, clinical aspects is that parvalumin neurons are uh, very consistently um, abnormal in the brains of people with schizophrenia, autism, bipolar disease, uh, Alzheimer's as well. So establishing what these neurons are doing at kind of a non-pathological level in mice, which is where a lot of these preclinical uh, trials are, are ran nowadays, um, is just gonna be beneficial in identifying uh, what the function of these neurons is uh, normally and then we can understand maybe what does it mean that these neurons are abnormal in a pathological state. Cool. You know, I, I think that uh, if you ask any clinician, you know, what, what do you think we should do about any of these disorders that you discussed that you mentioned there? Um, more often than not, they say, no, we need more fundamentals. We got to know what's happening normally. And that's like, that's of crucial importance because it's really easy to just give someone a drug and then see how it works. And that is happening all over the world. And so many um, disorders of the brain are being just treated like haphazardly, like just throw a thousand drugs at it. And it's been real difficult <laughs> uh, to treat anything in the brain. And, and, and now companies are, 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 some of them have actually even started giving up on their whole department. Pharmaceutical companies are basically shutting down saying, we're not treating the brain anymore. We can't do it. So we need to know more on the ground before we really uh, go and actually treat. And your work is absolutely key. So um, maybe could you tell us, you're, the, you're a PhD in the neuroscience program, doing this really fundamental, important, cool, interesting studies, cognition in mice. 
what brought you here? Why were you interested in working on this stuff? Yeah, no. Um, I guess what brought me here, so I'm from Prince Edward Island. I did my uh, undergraduate degree at the University of Prince Edward Island. And then my, the last year of my degree was obviously considering going to graduate school. So I imagine I did what most people did, started clicking on random schools and running through the uh, the faculty list to, to see what people were doing and and to see uh, what may kind of co-align with my interest. And I came across uh, uh, Dr. Lisa Saxida. Um, I'm co-supervised by her and Dr. Tim Bussey uh, here at Western. And just saw kind of the this write-up about what they're doing and then reading some of their papers. Uh, I just thought it was... Um, thought it was crazy like I like the touchscreen systems and um, the way that uh, they developed these touchscreen systems and the task was really in a way to better facilitate the translation of animal findings to human to uh, to human research and that they are adapting tasks that are commonly used in humans obviously uh, human testing is a lot of it's done automated using things like touchscreens um, so they had the idea of taking these tasks and bringing them bringing them to rodents. If we're gonna to try to model cognition, why not first start at making the tasks as similar as possible? Um, and so I thought that initiative was, was really important, to be honest, in terms of trying to improve the efficacy of preclinical research in terms of uh, neurological disorders and diseases, but also just at a foundational level. And uh, then uh, after kind of going through their research some more, uh, they were getting into doing optogenetics and a bunch of other cool stuff that I, I hadn't heard of, and it just seems like uh, too good of an opportunity not to at least pursue it. And uh, and it's really been, yeah, amazing in terms of the the type of work we get to do and, and seeing the development of everything come together with the the tests and these techniques being integrated. It's uh, It's been awesome. Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, uh, we're looking forward to seeing more of your work and uh, I don't know, maybe when you get closer to the end, you can come back on and tell us the uh, final, final results. But really cool stuff you've been doing so far. Um, we are just about at the end of our time. Uh, could you maybe tell people if they want to find you on social media somewhere to see what you're up to? Uh, where could they find you? Yeah, uh, I have a very inactive Twitter account that I believe the handle is TylerDexter13. Um, I hope it is. Uh, but yeah, when uh, <laughs> things going on, I'll, I'll put it on there. And uh, I think uh, the best way to kind of follow what we're doing is to uh, go to touchgreencognition.org and you can kind of see uh, how things are progressing with uh, uh, the cognitive tasks I discussed, the integration of these techniques, and, uh, and that'd probably be the best spot to, to keep up to date with what's going on. Excellent. Okay. Thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thank you very much. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame, and my co-host was Laura Baina. We've been speaking with Tyler Dexter, and this episode was produced also by Laura. If you'd like to be involved in the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at gradcastradio. Uh, to listen to us, you can find us on the radio, CHRW 94.9 FM. And also, uh, all our episodes are available on our website at gradcast.ca. Uh, you can find us on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify, basically anywhere where podcasts are available. 
Uh, also, select episodes are available in video format on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.